For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. These verses that I just read come from the very end of chapter 8 in the letter to the Romans. And they are the very climax of the message of that great epistle. That all of the chapters leading up to these verses were uh, preparatory for this great truth. And everything that comes after in the book of Romans is really just unpacking the implications uh, of this great truth. And I think it's significant that the Spirit, when speaking through St. Paul, gave us eight full chapters of teaching prior to telling us about the love of God. Because along the way, we've learned a lot of things, a lot of other things about God uh, and his character and his dealings towards us that frame and inform what we understand, how we understand the love of God. In fact, it sort of struck me as I was reading this for, in preparation for this uh, Sunday, I thought, I don't think the love of God has been mentioned at all yet. And indeed, I ran a word search to see, and, and no, in fact, it hadn't. The love of God is, Paul holds it back until chapter 8. But then I was looking at the list of what else Paul has told us about that comes from God, of God, in the eight chapters that come before. And the list kind of blew my mind. So I actually just want to read you this long list. These are things which in the first eight chapters, Paul has spoken about as being of God. So first he introduces the letter about as being about the gospel of God. He names the Son of God, the Beloved of God, the peace of God, the will of God, the power of God, the righteousness of God, the controlling theme of chapters 3 and 4, right? The wrath of God. So before he spoke spoken about love, he spoke speaks of wrath. The glory of God. The truth of God, the decree of God, the judgment of God. The kindness of God in close proximity. The righteous judgment of God, the name of God. The oracles of God, the fear of God, the forbearance of God, the promise of God, the grace of God, introduced in chapter 5, the gift of God, the law of God, the spirit of God, introduced in chapter 8, which I preached on a couple weeks ago, the children of God, that's us, who are also the heirs of God and the elect of God. And then finally, Paul has named the right hand of God where Christ sits presently. Isn't that an epic list? <laughs> it sort of struck me that it's almost like the whole message of the Bible summed up in one word catchphrases. Remember that party game catchphrase where you just get one word to say, um, you know, righteousness, wrath, judgment, kindness, promise, grace, heirs. Weighty words that really sum up how God deals with us sinful creatures. And after telling that 
uh, in those descriptions, that whole story, the epitomized version of God's work, then Paul, guided by the Spirit, takes us to the very top of the mountain which he's been climbing. And at the top, he announces the love of God. The beating heart of the mystery of the gospel. Behind all these things, righteousness, judgment, wrath, grace, gift, heirs, all those things, behind them all is the love that God has for us. His inestimable love that motivates and sustains all of God's actions toward us. This is an incredible thing to hear, and I think it's something we should never allow ourselves to get over, that God, God in heaven, loves us. God loves us. It is, in fact, the most sacred truth, the most incredible thing we could even imagine hearing, a truth unique to the Christian proclamation. Only Christ has revealed that God loves mankind. No other religion ever even thought to mention that. Love, uh, the love of God is not mentioned in the Quran. The Muslims don't know about it. They're in darkness. It's a truth that is so sacred and so intimate that I think even when it's spoken of in the wrong setting, it gets misunderstood. I've actually sometimes struggled to preach on Romans 8 in the past because I feel like the message, the love of God, taken out of a context, becomes this sort of um, blasé, sort of blanket affirmation. Like, well, God loves you, just don't worry about your life and do whatever you want. Like, you know, God loves you. As if it's just this sort of panacea and, and, and not a specific declaration of who he is couched in the midst of all the other truths of the biblical story. I really think actually the message of God is love only makes sense, only makes speaks truly when it's couched in this holy of holies of Romans chapter 8, sort of surrounded and hedged in by Romans chapter 7 and 6 and 5 and 4 and 3 and 2 and 1. But grasping it as we do now, as having heard Romans chapter 8, 35 and 39, as doers of the word. This message of God's love, the thing we know motivates all of his actions towards us, Paul goes on to say can actually motivate all of our actions towards him. If you know and really know that God personally loves you personally, um, it really transforms everything about life specifically with regards to suffering, and this is what Paul pivots towards, that nothing in life is too much after that, when you know that truth. Nothing is over-frightening. Nothing is unbearable. Nothing can come between you and the love that God has for you. Paul lists, actually, very specifically in verse 35, tribulation and distress that cannot separate you from Christ's love which I think it's important to kind of reverse engineer that truth too. Um, that if you're experiencing tribulation, even in its worst forms, as Paul mentions, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. I mean, this has been some rough times in 2020, but we still aren't even facing those things yet, right? If you're suffering even those things, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. And I think that's one of the, the first whispers that the enemy whispers in our ear whenever great misery befalls us personally or, or as a group is, you know, that thing of like, where is God in this? Which is a question that rests on the idea that somehow he might not be there, or that his love for you has changed, or that he's angry, or that there's some, well, he may be angry, but that the anger, as if, as if it means the absence of love. 
So I think it's important to receive the reverse engineered truth that when it, no matter what you're experiencing, God's love for you hasn't changed at all. Nothing, that's the message, nothing can separate us from his love. In fact, Paul, in sort of very quick fashion, sort of doubles down on that truth. He, he quotes from Psalm 44 when he says that thing about we were like sheep before the slaughter, killed all the day long. He says we can, ex- he, what he's saying is that the Bible actually tells us that we should expect to be, to suffer such things all the time. Right? We, we are killed all the day long. And St. Paul's own life bore that out, right? You look at the Acts of the Apostles, you look at his catalog of sufferings in First and Second Corinthians, you know, beaten, tortured, imprisoned, hungry, without clothes. I mean, he, everything that he lists, he himself experienced. And his knowledge of God's love for him only deepened. And in fact, uh, he only loved God more in, in response. That's why he himself was what he tells us that we are more than conquerors. That great phrase, right? You are more, we are more than conquerors. These things can come, but we win. All of the trials um, that we face in this life, all of them, at their very worst, the very, very worst, lead to death. And so Paul actually goes even further, and the list that he begins in verse 35, he continues in verse 38, which he begins with death at the top of the list. So he says, neither death but he kind of goes on just from individual tribulation and distress and goes cosmic. <laughs> Death, all the things that hurt or kill the body, nor life, nothing in this life, no living thing, nor angels, nor rulers, and the word there means spiritual rulers, like the sort of archangels arch that sort of uh, still have some authority in the world and some of whom are wicked, like the principalities and powers mentioned in Ephesians 6. Nor things present, the historical moment that we are in right now, nor things to come, anything in the future in political history or in the wrathful judgments that God has promised will come in the last times. Nor powers, by which he means the civil authorities that are beholden to spiritual authority and ultimately to the sovereign judgment of God. And then, nor height nor depth. What an interesting thing after this in this list, right? What's he saying there? I think he's saying the very sort of cosmic Cartesian structure of the universe on which the battle between like archangels and angels and principalities plays out, the very fabric of the universe itself cannot stand in your way. And in fact, he says, nor anything else in all creation, by which he means everything that is not God, everything that's less than God, God who created all that is visible and is invisible, none of these things can separate us from the love of God. The love of God in Christ Jesus. I love that phrase. I think there's a very intentional double meaning of that, you, that phrase as it sits there, in Christ Jesus. Um, it has two directions to it. That God's love for us is eternally shown in the person and in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus Christ in heaven is a perpetual reminder that God loves us. It's John 3, 16, right? Jesus exists as a God-man and not just as the Son of God because he loves us. He exists in his resurrected body because he died for us. God loves us in Christ Jesus. If we've seen Christ, we've seen the Father's love for us. But in the other direction, we receive God's love because we are now in Christ. That's something Paul preached just two chapters earlier, that we've been baptized into his body, baptized into his death and resurrection, that 
we receive the Father's love in Christ, and we are able to receive the Father's love because we are in Christ, right? This sort of Christ is the, the intersection of God's love in all directions. So with this real love that is in his heart and the knowledge that we now have of this love, Paul is trying to tell us that all things are sufferable. All storms can be weathered because we are always loved by God in heaven. So I want to actually um, lead you in just a 20-second exercise that I hope will be the first time of many times that you do this in the future, especially when suffering, um, if you haven't done it before. But try and picture to yourself God in heaven and picture Christ Jesus, the man Christ Jesus. And just try and conceive for a second the love that he has for you in his heart. That here he is sitting on the throne of the universe and in his heart is specific love for you specifically. As many of the uh, church fathers have said that if you were the only human being in all creation, Christ would have died just for you. And that this love he has in his heart, he has always had, actually before the foundation of the world, and will always have, and nothing can separate you from it. There is no, nothing gets between the warm uh, intimacy and connection between us and our Savior, between the love in his heart and us who are the object of his love. Being aware of his love, it doesn't make the misery go away, as we know. And so for that reason, I think sometimes uh, fleshly doubt says, well, so what that he loves us? I'm still you know, horrifically unhappy in whatever thing is happening. But I think if we actually grip, if we actually grasp the knowledge, if we actually grip the fact that he does love us in some mysterious way, and it is mysterious, the suffering becomes bearable. Um, either in the just the reminder that he has done the opposite of forgetting uh, forgetting you, right? That's the great fear in in in, in misery. But actually, as as many saints testify, the knowledge um, when, when we really perceive how much he loves us, all the saints testify that even the the miseries and the trials and the sufferings that he permits are actually out of the overflow of his love. And this is something that it doesn't make sense to rationality. <laughs> and it's why I, I'm so uninterested in sort of philosophical solutions to the problem of evil. It, it's impossible to solve rationally, right? But in the realm of faith, in the heart, even though it can't be understood here in the head, it can be understood here. And, and it begins with the knowledge of his love to see that somehow he's inviting, he's actually leading us into suffering that is akin to the suffering of his own son, the suffering by which the world was redeemed, by which we are redeemed, by which others could be redeemed. And it's very mysterious, and each particular suffering has its own individual path to sort of see it this way, but it, all the saints testify, it begins with really believing and knowing that God loves you and is only doing what is in accord with his love for you. That it's not like, the strings of the world just kind of got out of his hands. It's like, oops, coronavirus over here, or oops, this terrible pain. All of these, his sovereign declarations are coming forth from his heart of love.
being aware of his love, reframes the magnitude of the problem and in some mysterious way scales it and allows us to weather it. Just like the son could weather his great suffering because he knew that the father loved him and was going to raise him from the dead. Right? Is our situation any different? The father loves us and is going to raise us from the dead. If he can endure that plus the spiritual torment for the sins of the entire world, we, we can endure as well. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.